0: The Biz
1: News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. Remember... Well, it's nice to be with you this evening, and uh, my name's Alec Hogg, coming to you from the richest square mile in Africa here in Santon at the Biz News headquarters. We have got a show to remember for you this evening. In just a little while, I'll be introducing you to tonight's guest co-host, Magnus Haystek. We have Eddie Cross uh, from Zimbabwe. An independent thinker. In fact, tonight, we are specializing in independent thinkers. Uh, Magnus is well known for for saying as he sees it. Eddie Cross is in a similar situation. We have Judge Johan Krichler, who certainly does not stand back for anyone. And he'll be talking about Judge Lope and the issues that surround that. Here at BizNews, we were uh, discussing it earlier and saying, but hang on, most of South Africa don't know how important... Uh, the Judge Laupe issue is So uh, Judge Johan Crickler Will be telling us that And it's a beautiful time To have him on the show Because he was the chairman Of the Independent Electoral Commission From 1993 to 1999 In other words He was the guy Who shepherded in the 1994 election And we celebrate that As a public holiday On Tuesday the 27th Also tonight We will have Yet another uh, independent thinker in darren levy he's the chief executive of vida e cafe uh, a coffee shop and you can imagine that if anybody's been hurt by the lockdowns it'll be coffee shops. so what have they done at vida how have they managed to get through it and indeed are they looking forward to the future uh, with trepidation or hope What's coming up in the next hour so i hope you're going to stay with us But first, let's, as per usual, get off a uh, to a good start with the news of the day. Our editor at large, Jackie Cameron.
2: A takeover bid by a Huge Group to acquire rival Adapt IT has become ugly, with the Huge Group ordered to remove videos from the public domain in which it attacks the motives of Adapt IT's management related to an offer from Valaris to acquire the company. In the videos, Huge Group questions the motives of Adapt IT CEO. Cebu Shabalala and other Adapt IT executives. Shabalala previously said they were very interested in the Valaris transaction as it gave shareholders a significant premium on the prevailing share price. My Broadband reports that Huge Group, which has also made an offer to Adapt IT shareholders, questioned the Shabalala and other Adapt IT executives' motives in the videos. Huge Group CEO James Herbst told My Broadband that Huge and Adapt IT are better off together and will create more value for shareholders than the Valaris deal. The Takeover Regulation Panel ordered the huge group to take the video down. South Africa's net care expects first-half core profit to be down about 40% from a year earlier after a second wave of COVID-19 forced it to suspend elective surgery in favour of necessary and time-sensitive procedures, it said on Thursday. Revenue in the six months to March 31st is expected to be between 55 and 6.5% lower, the private hospital group said. South Africa's NED Bank will stop funding new thermal coal mines by 2025 and halt direct funding of new oil and gas exploration as it plans to phase out fossil fuel exposure over the next 24 years. South African lenders, among the biggest banks in the continent, face pressure from environmental groups to stop funding fossil fuel-based projects. These are viewed as a major risk to global plans to tackle climate change. Nedbank, one of the country's four biggest banks, said it aimed to have zero exposure to all activities related to fossil fuels by 2045, and it plans to accelerate financing of renewable energy. The African Union's Disease Control Body and World Health Organization have urged African countries to not waste COVID-19 vaccines donated to them. This comes after confusion in Malawi and South Sudan about whether doses they received had expired. John Nkengasong, director of the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, was quoted as saying, My appeal to member states is, if we are doing our part to mobilize these vaccines, you do your part and use the vaccines. Reuters reports that Malawi has said it plans to destroy more than 16,000 doses of AstraZeneca's vaccine manufactured by the Serum Institute of India because the shots were not administered before the April 13th expiry date on the packaging. The doses were supplied by the AU, thanks to a donation from South African telecoms group MTN. South Sudan has set aside just under 60,000 doses supplied by the AU and says it is not using them because of the same expiry issue. South Africa plans to begin issuing Johnson & Johnson's coronavirus vaccine to the general public next month after settling a contractual dispute with the US drug maker. Kumbudsun Chaveni, an acting minister in the presidency, is quoted as saying that the outstanding matters relating to the order for 31 million doses have been resolved. South African Health Minister William Kese told Parliament last week that J&J would not sign off on the deal until it received greater assurance of support from the state. The terms insisted on by the company were at times unreasonable, he said. And that brings to a close your business Flash Briefing. For more on those and the other big stories of the day, do head over to biznewsradio.com. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biznews.
1: There's so much in that report that we're going to be picking up on later. Just because we're in Africa, we're supposed to use expired vaccines when the vaccines haven't really been accepted elsewhere. Wow, this strange, strange world we live in. But Brightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets. Aren't any different. The daily movements in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. And here with me in the studio is Justin Rowe Roberts.
3: The JSE share Index was slightly lower at 67,000. Internationally, the bloodbath continues at Credit Suisse, with the Swiss lender announcing further losses in the Archegos demise, now standing at 5.5 billion dollars, with not all positions unwinded as yet. Locally, Steinhoff owned Pepco increased by 5% to 15 rand. 60 cents. Suntum increased 7 rand to 255 rand a share. Prosis went up by 25 rand to a shade under 1,600 rand a share, and Sabania Stillwater lost two and three quarters of a percent to 70 rand a share. In the currency markets, the rand was flat against all the major currencies to 14 rand, 29 cents to the dollar, 19 rand, 78 cents to the sterling and 17 rand, 18 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,784 an ounce. Brent crude is trading at $65, 70 cents a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 780k bitcoin.
1: And this market report was made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs match life insurance that changes as your life changes. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Tonight's guest co-host is Magnus Heistek, founder and chief executive of Brenthurst Wealth Management. Magnus, uh, good to have you, as always, on the program. Let's just just be a bit rational about this. We've got these international companies who are saying – that they will not sign off on their vaccines unless they're indemnified. Uh, Now, (laughs) doesn't that immediately uh, scare you? You can imagine the the thalidomide manufacturers of many years ago uh, who had went out of business as a consequence of that, uh, saying the same kind of thing. You know, we've got this vaccine and we've rushed it through and it's going to work for you, but if it doesn't, we don't want to be held responsible. Amen.
4: Yeah. Good afternoon, Eric. I think they're in a very difficult position. Normally, a trial and until a completion of a product like that would take many, many years, and, and and being tested by many thousands of people before it's brought to the market. And because of the the, 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 the size of the pandemic and the urgency. I'm quite sure they're saying that we, we haven't had enough time, but we do need the vaccine. It might be 98% effective, but we have to be indemnified against that 2% or 1%, or whatever the percentage might be. Uh, I, I think they're just being prudent. They, they're scared of being sued by very large groups of people. You know that all over the world, especially in the US, but in South Africa today as well, you have uh, uh, many lawyers who would love to have a go at, at a big company like Pfizer or AstraZeneca. So I have sympathy for them. I think they, they know how serious it is. They want to get it out there, but they're not going to sign off unless there's some kind of indemnification.
1: Yeah, and I guess we don't know what the long-term impact will be. We know so little. It reminds me of a wonderful book uh, called <clears throat> The Body uh, that uh, I, I read recently. And in that book, the, the author was, was uh, explaining on almost every second page, uh, well, actually, we don't know how this part of the body works. And, and no, we don't know how that part of the body works. So so much about the human being and how we function is still a huge mystery. So if you're if you now are having a, a vaccine... And I'm a great believer in vaccines. I actually wrote about it uh, this morning in, in the newsletter to the premium subscribers because, Magnus, of our vintage, when we grew up, a lot of kids had polio, you might recall. I'm sure you, you, you will recall the, the, the poor kids who, whose legs were withered or, as a consequence of getting polio. And, of course, vaccines have cleaned out. There's no more polio, pretty much, certainly not in South Africa. So you can see what good vaccines can do. But, my goodness, if it's such a mystery… Are we, who knows, it's a dilemma, isn't it?
4: It is indeed. That book's title, The Body, reminds me of an old girlfriend, but we're not going to talk about
1: her. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> this one was by Bryson. <laughs> not, <laughs> not by Haystack. But, but, but you're right. It, it
4: is, uh, as you say, we grew up in an environment. The first thing you did when you open your eyes as you get your paleo shots. I think we got three or four of them until you've completed the course and there were side effects in in the early stages, but uh, I think the pharmaceutical companies got very good at it. But So I do have sympathy for them, but I've been following this very closely, especially the AstraZeneca research and what they've been doing as a result of um, uh, Segnia's involvement in that. And I'm quite sure that all of these manufacturers are saying, you know, we cannot be held responsible. Governments and the politicians are putting us under pressure Get these vaccines out. We have to immunize uh, immunize the entire populations. But, boy, we've only had eight months or or ten months to to rush these vaccines through.
1: The book I was talking about was called The Body, A Guide for Occupants by Bill Bryson, who's a a fantastic writer and a great researcher. He is,
4: isn't he? He's uh, written a couple of fantastic uh, off-the-beaten-track kind of books.
1: But I promise you, you read that book, Magnus, you realize that we only, only know a fraction about Uh, the vessels that we inhabit we're going to be talking or getting to know a heck of a lot more about Zimbabwe in just a moment uh, when we chat with Eddie Cross but I tell you why I'm starting to get excited about Zimbabwe first of all I saw an interview that Eddie did uh, recently where uh, this one-time critic is now saying hang on this country is starting to lift its head which you would think if if you introduce uh, sensible economic policies and there's Great people. We've always known Zimbabwe is a bit like South Africa, blessed by its people and cursed by its leaders. But if you take that further as an investor and you have a look at the opportunities that exist, Tongard Hewlett, uh, our colleague uh, Charles Boerter was telling us today, is about 80% of its business is in Zimbabwe, and that's been written off to zero. So if Zim starts coming right and the sugar operations there owned by Tongard Hewlett do benefit Well, there's uh, an optionality that uh, you might be looking at.
4: Well, you know, from a farming perspective, Zimbabwe's yields on its crops, you know, like maize and tobacco and just about everything you push into the ground has been substantially higher than South Africa. And a lot of South African farmers do, or they used to farm in Zimbabwe as well, the game farms, and, and they were very, very successful. They would love to get back into Zimbabwe such citrus and all that kind of stuff. So it'll be a fantastic story for the whole southern continent, including South Africa, that the Zimbabwean economy starts picking up uh, and and, uh, start creating more jobs for people from Zimbabwe because there's about, about a million or two million Zimbabweans in South Africa who fled their country because of the desperate situation. Which, which does create problems in South Africa on, on many different levels. That would be fantastic to hear about Eddie. He's been around for a very, very long time, as far as I can remember. I don't know how old he is, but uh, he's always been a very independent and, and a sharp analyst on the situation in Zimbabwe. Well,
1: g- good to have you on the program, Eddie, and, uh, and thank you for joining us this evening. It looks like your connectivity is pretty good uh, from what we can see on the screen in front of us. I think that uh, it's a good idea, anybody listening to you can go online and and look at uh, your your story. It's very easy to pick up by Googling Eddie Cross. But in the past, you've been a critic uh, of the government, certainly in the time that you were uh, very closely involved in the MDC, the official opposition. However, in a recent interview that I saw you giving to the SABC, you seem are, are decidedly upbeat about what's going on in Zim at the moment. What is giving you this optimism when we seem to be in a, a world of of pessimism, particularly when it comes to Zimbabwe?
0: Well, my roots uh, go back to Ireland um, about um, two hundred years ago, and um, when my great grandfather came out from Ireland to South Africa as a as a missionary. And uh, you know the Irish, we're against everybody. So I've been in opposition forever in Zimbabwe, and I must say that um, I battled with Robert Gabriel Mugabe. Um, I supported his his adoption of his assumption of power in 1980, and worked fairly hard for him for about seven years. But really, he screwed up things here big time, and uh, and I joined the opposition. Uh, in 1999 and spent uh, 20 years in the trenches with them. Uh, Ten years of those, half of that was in Parliament as a member of Parliament on the opposition benches. And yes, I I am a a critic of uh, the party that's currently ruling Zimbabwe. I have been from the inception. But I think we've got to pay credit where credit is due. And uh, the new government, which came to power in 2017 uh, during what we call the military-assisted transition, which is a euphemism for a coup, Um, the new government has started to really plot a different course uh, to Robert Mugabe. And the most dramatic changes have taken place in the economic sphere, mainly because um, immediately after he won the election in 2018, Emerson Munangagwa, our president, appointed an eminent economist as the Minister of Finance. He's a man without any political roots. He's not a politician. And that's always difficult in, in, in government. If you don't have political roots, you don't have political clout, it's difficult to get your decisions across and get them adopted by the party. But because the president has backed him, he's been able to implement very radical reforms. So you know, I, I really can't credit, I can't give enough credit to what he's done. Uh, when he came into power, when he came into his position in in August 2018, he faced an impossible task. Uh, inflation was <clears throat> out of control. It would rise to 800% per annum. Uh, not quite the same as it was during the Mugabe era, but still astronomic by any terms. The government was spending 40 cents in the dollar, which it didn't have. They were borrowing 40 cents of every dollar they were spending, so a huge fiscal deficit. I mean, when you think the the Greek crisis was over a 9% deficit in fiscal expenditure, our deficit was 40%, just crazy. Um, On top of that, they were printing money and they were calling it US dollars. We had $23,000 million in our bank accounts (laughs) which uh, the government called US dollars, and of course it wasn't. Um, and our our parastatals were basically collapsing. Uh, we were subject to huge uh, shortages of electricity and just about everything. And uh, this guy walked into that complete shambles And the first thing he did was within five days of assuming the position of Minister of Finance, he published a thing called the Transitional Stabilization Plan. None of us read it because we all thought, well, we've seen there, been there and done that. We've seen plan after plan after plan in the last 40 odd years. They mean nothing. Nobody pays any attention. But in fact, the guy stuck to his guns and he implemented the wretched thing. So today, two and a half, three years later from that time, uh, we find ourselves with inflation down to close to 2% per month, still too high, but dropping rapidly. Um, we have no fiscal um, deficit. We are running a fairly substantial fiscal surplus. Salaries, which were 97% government expenditure in 2018, are now less than forty percent, um, which is which to me is a massive achievement. Uh, the political pain of that decision alone um, has been enormous. And uh, on top of that, we have a balance of payment surplus first time in our history, and we've had we've had stable exchange rates now for nine months. Eddie, now, I'm really interested in this because I have a, a
1: dear friend. Um, who is a newspaper proprietor, was in South Africa. He owned the Mail and Guardian, Trevor Ngrube. And he then went Trevor. back to Zim and he, threw, he was all in. And I'm, I know he's very close to Mtuli Ngrube, who's the finance minister. In fact, Mtuli was on Trevor's board here in South Africa uh, when he owned the Mail and Guardian. So what you're saying appears to justify his decision and indeed that of other um, thinking Zimbabweans who went back home. But how far are you from letting the rest of the world know or letting the rest rest of the world understand and accept that something's happening, something is afoot?
0: Well, businessmen know it because they can feel the ground changing underneath their feet. Um, One of Munangagwa's biggest failures is communication. He's not a good communicator. He's not a good speaker. He's a lousy politician. Um, He's there basically because he uh, overthrew Mugabe and and took power by military force. Um, But the guy, you know, one of the key things for political leadership is choosing the right people for the right jobs. Um, I remember the the, the shambles of uh, one or two of the presidential characters who ran the United States and uh, and looked at Reagan, who's not cowboy as a cowboy in every sense of the word, but he chose the right guys uh, to run the various ministries, and and I think uh, Emerson chose six out of twenty ministers completely outside of the political realm. So our minister of finance, our minister of finance is a is a good guy. Minister of Mines is a former chief executive of a big mining corporation here. Minister of Industry is a, is a top-flight uh, intellectual, but they have no, no roots. Now, communicating what they've done to the international community is critical, and I'm deeply critical of people like the IMF who have feet on the ground here, who know exactly what's going on. They get information from our system every week, every day almost. And they know damn well what's happening, and they they can see the consequences, and they've given them absolutely no credit for it whatsoever. On top of that, you know, when I was in the opposition party, the MDC, we had roughly one of our members abducted every day for 17 years, 4,800-odd people. Many of them were never to be seen again. In the last three years, we've had five abductions, four of which we think were staged, by civil society to try and get attention from the media, and they got attention from the media. And um, I I think that the message is slowly coming through. I'll tell you, for example, there are 1,200 young white farmers back farming in Zimbabwe. These are the grandchildren of the farmers who were shut down by Mugabe during his fast-track land reform program. On top of that, we have a third generation of young industrialists who come who've come into into their companies, and they're making a huge impact here. Halsteads, uh, Graham Halsteads, um, Graham Richards in the Richards Group. Uh, you know, you, I could I could roll mm. off uh, a dozen companies that are flying, um, and and are doing extremely well. And um, I I've got to ask you about two
1: ahead. that. Two that yeah. we're looking at here. The one is Tongard Hewlett, which has got a, a big sugar business in Zim. And the other one is PPC, which also has a, a significant um, exposure in the in the cement industry. Are you guys, A, uh, start, is, is the sugar side starting to improve? And B, are you starting to build? Are you using cement again?
0: Tongard Hewlett um, has been a company in a mess for quite a long time. Uh, here in Zimbabwe they have two companies hippo valley and triangle uh, they bought hippo valley from anglo american when anglo american was disinvesting from southern africa and uh, frankly i i'm not a i'm not a i'm not a f- a big fan um, uh, i think from a company point of view they're quite frankly Slop. Uh they could have done a lot better if you look down the road at the sugar operations of um of green fuel, which is uh, owned by another individual, an Zimbabwean, their yields per hectare are 50% higher than Tongard Hewlett's. And um, I think that Tongard has been in a a comfortable situation. They've made a lot of money here. It's one of their most profitable operations. Uh, But frankly, they've not exploited the opportunities. Uh, Hippo Valley right now is busy planting up 5,000 hectares of new land. That's the first expansion. I can think of in the past 30 years. Uh, but they're making money. Um, I think they've sorted out their management problems. Um, I hope they've done the same thing in Zimbabwe. And, uh, but they're in a solid position. They're virtually a monopoly here, which is very dangerous. In fact, I've been very critical of their domestic pricing mm. policies. I think, in fact, we should allow the free import of sugar into Zimbabwe because big corporate monopolies like Tongat Hewlett need competition. Having said that, PPC is a great company. I mean, uh, I'm, a, I'm an admirer of PPC. PPC this year will do roughly 1.8 million tons of cement into the domestic market. They've invested heavily uh, in, in the country. Um, they represent about 40% of domestic demand. And uh, they produce a very high-quality product, which has wide acceptance throughout the country. We're going to sell this year around about 4 million tons of cement. Lafarge have come in, but they're quite a lot smaller than uh, – I say Lafarge is about 1.2 million tons, a lot smaller than PPC, but is starting to make significant inroads. They, they also have expanded recently. And uh, put in new production capacity. The it's big a entry. Just good story. Has been the Chinese. Uh, just just to close
1: off with four million tons this year of cement because it's a good indicator of the economy. How does that compare with previous years or, or years uh, recent years?
0: The most we've ever sold in the past is about two point seven. Eighty cross. We're selling, yeah, we've got a, we've got a building boom underway here, which is just extraordinary because you can't see any building cranes. It's all housing. It's extraordinary. Eddie,
1: thank you for joining us. So we could go on for the whole program, but unfortunately we don't have the time for that. But I look forward to uh, keeping in touch with the Zimbabwean situation with you. And thanks for that uh, insightful discussion. Okay, so PPC, uh, Justin. PPC
3: and Tonga are officially on our radars, Alec.
1: Officially on our radars. And in fact, uh, probably into the BizNews portfolio, almost certainly.
3: Exactly. I mean, both of them do have... Some form of legacy issues, but um, That's mar- why cheap. markets are forward looking and we're paying for the price in the future. So, yes, I agree. Um, we're we definitely going to look at them in the business portfolio.
1: At BrightRock, we believe that change can unlock amazing opportunities. We've partnered with industry leaders to provide you with tips and tools to help you navigate life's big change moments. Welcome. To this week's thought leadership feature made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever matched life insur sorry, the first ever needs matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. And it's a real honor to kick off this part of our uh, or this new sponsorship from BrightRock about thought leaders with Judge Johan Krichler. Uh, Judge Crickler, lovely to have you on the program. And I, I guess you must be looking ahead to the rest of us on Tuesday is a holiday. But for you, it would be bringing back memories of 1994 when really you were the chairman of the IEC, which meant you were husbanding in the first democratic election in South Africa.
5: Alec, I, I, I haven't forgotten it Yes, sir. <laughs> I, I, I get goosebumps when I do think about it, but yeah.
1: Extraordinary times, and uh, I guess uh, there are many who would look back on South Africa and say, where we are today, uh, had we known it in 1994, we would probably have bought it despite all of our issues. Are you among one of those?
5: No, no, no. We're in a lousy place, but we were in an infinitely worse place before. We've dropped a lot of the the catches since 1994, but we're still in a better game, no doubt.
1: Judge, you are uh, involved, very involved uh, with Freedom Under Law. Uh, we're trying to unpack for a, a greater community exactly what's going on with uh, Judge President of the Western Cape, Clope. But let's start. If you could just explain to us what Freedom Under Law is about and, and your involvement there.
5: Freedom Under Law is a little civil society organization where about uh, half a dozen no, about a dozen uh, lawyers in this country and in Zimbabwe and in Namibia who do things to promote the rule of law, particularly we 're interested in the administration of justice in the countries. Uh, if the law society in Namibia isn 't sufficiently active in looking at the fish knot issue. If Beatrice and Tetua is in trouble in uh, Zimbabwe, we we go and support her. Though by and large, overwhelmingly, our work is here. We also have a presence in Botswana, but that's a a, a stable society. We we really don't have concerns there. We have concentrated on the state of the judiciary, the state of the courts, and. Uh, much of our effort, much of our energy has, has been focused on Judge President John Flope. Uh, even before his sally into the Constitutional Court and his lobbying for his, his patron Zuma, he was a well, a, 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 a doubtful character. Already, you know, you will recall; others will recall going back to his taking money under the counter from a financial institution that was doing business in his jurisdiction, where he got a a very light slap on the wrist way back, uh, nearly twenty years ago. So when he hit the the the, the headlines uh, with his lobbying on. Brompton Hill, uh, he, he was no newcomer to us or, or to the, the, uh, the newspapers. We had been following that particular issue. We've been following the Motata issue and uh, Bosasa, uh, Sasa itself, the messing the, 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 the up of the, of the, of the contract, and the, 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 failure to pursue it with sufficient vigor. We were involved in getting rid of, uh, Sean Abrams, uh, of burning into Meza, uh, defending, uh, Ivan Pillay and, 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 Johann von Lochenberg and the other good guys at SARS. Those are more or less what have been keeping us going and been, for the last 12
1: years. And you've been, very, you've been very busy recently as well. Just to remind uh, people that you are a founding member of the Constitutional Court and that in a democracy, in a constitutional democracy, the Constitution is actually what rules us, not the politicians. And I think sometimes we forget that, and that's why on a program like this it's very important for us to understand what is going on with Judge President lope Now, Today you issued a statement at Freedom Under Law to say that he has been found guilty of gross misconduct, however he's still doing his job. So unpack that for us if you would and why you are calling for his immediate suspension and then I'm doing the worst thing in journalism and asking three questions in one and the third one is why doesn't the president suspend him?
5: Look, it's, it's, it's fairly complicated. If you'll give me a moment, I'll outline it. The, first of all, there's a mechanism for appointing judges, and there's a mechanism for dismissing judges. Both are very carefully constructed in order to ensure that judges are not susceptible to influence, to intimidation, to threats, but also to ensure that one can get rid of judges who fall into disrepute for some reason or another. The mechanism is partly in the Constitution and partly in legislation that was adopted pursuant to the Constitution. We uh, were not the original but certainly the major publicist of this system of a judicial service commission. It's, it's a big problem in democracies. How do you choose your judges? Judges are supposed to be independent of the executive. They're supposed to be in te- independent of the legislature. And, and how do you ensure that in their appointment and in their dismissal, they are not subject to undue influence by the other two branches of state? We've got the Judicial Service Commission. We, we thought it was a fabulous idea. And I may say I've sold it in many other jurisdictions where I've been privileged to work. It is not working here at the moment. It hasn't worked properly for some time, not because the system is bad, but because the people are running it badly. The Judicial Service Commission is supposed through its internal organs to receive complaints against judges to sift them to get rid of the rubbish at the beginning, thereafter to do a quality control and to deal with relatively important, but not very serious cases, to deal with them in-house quickly. Serious cases go to a tribunal, a tribunal which sits as an investigative body and it comes to its conclusion uh, by hearing evidence, taking evidence, it consists of two judges and a member of the public. And if the tribunal decides that a complaint against the judge is an impeachable one, one which could justify taking the matter to parliament where there will be a vote, uh, and if there's a two-third vote for dismissal, the judge is fired. The tribunal uh, recommends makes a finding and reports to the Judicial Service Commission, it considers the report and it then decides whether it should take the matter to Parliament. We have had one case in the past where the Judicial Service Commission had considered a report from its tribunal. That was in the case of Judge Mortata. The Judicial Service Commission itself decided to disagree with the tribunal it overruled its decision. It found that Judge Mutapa's, Mutata's conduct had been uh, misconduct, yes, uh, and serious, yes, but not gross. If it's gross, they have to report it to Parliament, and then it's Parliament's decision whether to fire or not. In the case of Judge Slope, they first of all, way back, tried to to, to to bury the thing. They came to the conclusion... But he said A, and the two judges that he had talked to said B, and they who could decide? So they, they closed down the show. We then took that to court. We missed out in the first instance. We then took it on appeal. We got an order saying that JSC cannot duck its job. It's got to deal with the matter. That was way back at 12 or 13 it then got stuck. It then got stuck. The appointment of the tribunal, the procedures that had to be followed for some reason or another with at times the active agency of Judge Schlaupe, the matter never ever got to a formal hearing until December last year. When the tribunal sat, it heard evidence, it heard the judge's It heard Judge Slope, and it came to a conclusion. It came to the conclusion that he had, in fact, tried to persuade the two judges to change their judgment in a case involving, at that stage, Mr. Zuma, not yet president. The case, actually, that was due to come up against him next month, which seems is going to be postponed again because his lawyer's have left him, uh, but that was the case that we said should be pursued. It has now been pursued. The matter is before the Judicial Service Commission again. There was a report uh, week before last Friday. So we've we now, said, you've, you've unpacked to it.
1: You've unpacked it well for us, Judge. Uh, I, I just want to know from members of the public. So. I think I understand better now the Judicial Service Commission and the Tribunal and Judge uh, President López. But but the crux of the matter here is that he's still doing his job, even though he was found guilty of gross misconduct, which you said means it should
5: actually be going to Parliament. (laughs) Yes, there is a mechanism to suspend a judge against whom such a proceeding is going. The Judicial Service Commission, for some reason or another, is not prepared to recommend to the president that he be suspended. We said that should have been done long time ago, at least at the very latest now that we've had this finding. He is, you say, he's doing his job. He's the judge president. He is the man in control of a division of the high court. His influence, his presence, his his governance of the division is extremely harmful to the administration of justice. To have the senior judge in the oldest division of the high court living under this kind of indictment is extremely embarrassing to all concerned. They should suspend. They should have decided it. We are going to press that they do deal with this issue now, in the immediate future.
1: Judge Crickley, by explaining it to us, uh, because often when uh, people from the legal fraternity discuss matters amongst themselves, they tend to go down a path that the rest of us look on and say, well, what's the big deal? But I think now we know what a big deal this is. What is the best possible outcome uh, that the public gets involved and starts asking the president to do what... It needs to be done in this case because in a constitutional democracy, you don't have the right to people uh, in the top places. Well, you haven't got much of a democracy anymore.
5: Alec, uh, public pressure, public in- indignation, pub- uh, public pressure on the public representatives. The JSC has become politicized. Although the members are there uh, as representatives of parliament, not as members of political parties, certain politicians have been playing politics, have been playing, playing party politics there, uh, and they should be put under public pressure uh, to, to realize that their job under their oath of office is to deal with this matter calmly, rationally, on its merits. Is it indeed acceptable that a judge could try to bully two young junior judges of the constitutional court in favor of of his uh, political sponsor? We say it's defeating the ends of justice. It's extremely serious. We wish the members of the commission to be made to realize that the integrity of the judiciary of South Africa, on which depends the integrity of the constitutional democracy that we're running, is in jeopardy if you play politics, when one man who happens to be politically connected and has friends in high places, slips over the traces and is not dealt with sufficient firmness And expedition
1: Judge Johan Crickler thank you for joining us this evening and this thought leadership feature was made just for you by Brightrock the first ever needs matched life insurance that changes as your life changes you're listening to the Biz News Power Hour brought to you by the team at biznews.com there you have it, Magnus. It was a little bit like a judgment we were getting from the judge. He certainly knows how to use words, doesn't he? But my goodness, Zuma, uh, the 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 residue from his maladministration live on.
4: Yes, indeed. I would hate to sit in front of Just Krichler while he's pre- uh, judging me uh, for whatever misdemeanor I have done. But the important part is, as I listen to him, you know, the, in, the independence of our judiciary and our, our high court, Supreme Court, Constitutional Court, also plays a role when, when foreign investors look at South Africa and say, can we put money into that country? And that's very critical, and that's why one has to support Just Krichler in his attempt to to, to to clear the rot, because once a country gets the stigma that its judges play politics and is in bed with um, the bad guys in government when it comes to big uh, court cases, they 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 will they will steer away. I mean, like in the case of Brazil, I think that's got a reputation of judges uh, not being partial and applying the law as they should. So. I mean, uh, that was a very good summary, but one mustn't forget what the foreign investors think about this because they've been fleeing our market for a long time. And I, I'm not saying it's because of this, but it is vitally important.
1: So interesting that, because it, it, just go back a little bit. In the Zuma administration, you had, for instance, uh, the Guptas, and we know they've gone. You had uh, the um, Brian Molefe uh, running Eskim, and he's gone. So it's almost like... The pawns have left the stage. They've all been captured. We know it's a bad, bad euphemism, but the pawns are off the stage. Then it moved up a little bit with Shaun the Sheep, uh, Abrahams uh, at the NPA being replaced and people in more senior positions going out. So the rooks and the knights and the bishops have now left the scene as well. But as a judge president of the Western Cape High Court Division, you're talking about almost a queen on a chessboard. Uh, who is now under threat and under attack? Yet he was Zuma's man, and it's been made pretty clear that he was Zuma's man. So you wonder why, given that de- uh, the democracy, that in a constitutional democracy, it's so important that you get the ju- you get the ju- justice system right. You wonder why there's there's so much backtracking. you think this is all part of the? ANC, one faction fighting the other faction, and you've got Ace Magashule's faction still holding on to Judge Lopez. Is it that intricate, perhaps?
4: I I think there are elements of that. If you look at what could be happening in the next couple of years, if if the ANC manages to control judges or certain judges, um, think of what could happen if the expropriation without compensation issue Gets to court. Uh, I'm just, I'm just saying that up. There's a big uh, piece of land that's been expropriated. The affected person or people go to court, and the ANC can actually, um, you know, put their judges in 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 place to deliver a judgment that's in their favour. Um, I think with the mineral rights issue, I think our current. Um, Judge Muhueng was uh, the deciding factor where he said that mineral rights do not belong to government, but they're only the custodian of the the mineral rights now that you could have a similar situation in terms of property. So it's very, very dangerous for a country where judges can be uh, deployed in order to uh, achieve certain political objectives. And there's a great danger that it might happen.
1: And it used to happen, and we know that it's often referred back, but this is what the National Party did. But actually, that doesn't make it right. Uh, we know that was wrong, and we know that we need to aim higher for your generation, Justin. I mean, listening to this, I understand for the first time now what's going on with this.
3: Exactly, Alec. It was great for Judge Krechler all his 88 years of wisdom, to share that with us. Um, interestingly, it's our second oldest guest we've ever had after Shapira. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, Mr. Shapiro, Mr. Shapiro is not going to be very happy. But we've got a got a much younger guest coming now, and also uh, somebody who thinks differently. Darren Levy is the chief executive of Vida e Café, a, a a coffee buff. Reading through your, uh, there's a lot about you on the internet, Darren. But uh, when when Justin and I were discussing this beforehand, it's got to be one of the most difficult businesses to be running. Given we had lockdown, uh, I, I just know when you go to our tambo, uh, as you walk through there, you get your cup of coffee and you get the, the guys saying obrigado when they, they serve you. And that's not been happening, but that's only a tiny fraction of, of your network, which surely must be under some pressure.
6: Evening, Alec. Thank you for the invitation. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, yes, we've obviously been through some very challenging times, Um 27th of March last year was the day that every single store closed and we sold no coffees, which was quite a thing to actually acknowledge. Um and we thought we were going to be closed for three weeks and we would struggle a bit because organizations in the hospitality industry typically don't have vast sums of um, you know, um not uh you know working capital sitting to to fund their businesses. But three weeks in a business like ours, nearly three hundred stores on the continent. Um, We had a plan. Um, Clearly that didn't happen and um, stores remain closed for longer, but more importantly, it's taken time to resurrect themselves. And in many cases, as you say, in corporate spaces, in areas that depend on tourism, um, in in the airports, um, we're still trading and under very reduced and challenging conditions. But um, obviously that's forced us to make certain decisions and, um, and, and do certain things that uh, has enabled us to be very much still open and trading, and uh, in many respects stronger and better than ever. Which is, I think, a, a, an experience that a lot of businesses have had to uh, have, have. Well, have have uh, a lot of businesses have experienced through the changes that they've had to make to their business when you don't have um, sort of top line revenue and cash flow number one. And in businesses like ours, which are fairly. Fixed cost heavy, you know. Um, we're not we're not those um, very topical um, Uber's and Airbnb's which are um, capital light and 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 variable cost based. So lots of initiatives, but very delighted and proud to say that um, under the current circumstances, doing better, stronger than ever. And when eventually that turnover does return, um, it's going to be. Supercharged, and in some cases, as I say, we don't expect it to return 300 stores. uh,
1: 300 stores now. I know with roughly 300 stores, we spoke with Kheri Fari from Capitech just after COVID Mm. hit, and he said, We're going to have to change things, we're going to close a lot of our stores, um, which is the the bank branches that uh, others call them branches, Capitech call them stores, and many of those stores have not come back. Did you take a well, first of all, how many people? Are employed in those 300 stores, and, and did you take a decision early on that you had to that some of them were not going to reopen?
6: Um, we we didn't expect, you know, looking at three weeks that some wouldn't open. But obviously, as time went on, one of the things that this pandemic has forced you to do is accelerate a lot of your activities. One of which is making those hard decisions. Which, um, you know, being 20, 30 years in the industry and in retail you still look back and it's those same old classic lessons of, uh, you know, why didn't you cull those few stores a little bit earlier? But fortunately for us, the number of stores that closed as a result of uh, the pandemic um, were, were literally less than, than one handful. Uh, we have a relatively efficient uh, number of stores um, and uh, one or two, I guess, which were coming to the end of the lease or we could fast track the closure. We made those decisions. Um, coupled with that obviously is the consequence on staff which was the principle obviously that we was a principle on which we based all our decisions was how we keep the business alive to look after our staff um, and to answer your question it's in the order of about a thousand staff members um, and about half of those are employed by the group um, uh, itself in the stores that we own and the other half um, in, in our franchise network and that was really the priority so through Restructuring through saving, through various revenue generation um, uh, activities, through the support like the TURS um, program, uh, we managed to to look after our staff extremely well throughout the period.
3: Darren, coffee um, is, I'm sure you've got a sticky customer base. Coffee is one of those products that you want to get it regularly from your coffee shop. With the work from home and all of that, have you pivoted to use um, platforms such as Uber Eats and Mr. Delivery or, or not?
6: Now, Justin, that's probably been the most successful pivot that we've made throughout this period. And fortunately, we are a brand that's very innovative in, in our DNA. And we actually started working with Mr. Delivery and Uber prior to the pandemic. We spent months testing how to deliver a coffee on a, in a car or on a motorbike, obviously realizing it would never exactly mir- mirror the, the, the in-store barista experience. But we knew and we saw, we were watching these trends globally, So when the pandemic hit, it was really just you know, the pivot for our business was just acknowledging that this is an accelerant. It was just made us fast track whatever we're doing. So we almost have Mr. D and Uber running in all of our stores. The delivery volumes, believe it or not, in a coffee business, although food is a big part of our is of our offer, have 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 have, have not just doubled; they've increased near, over 500 percent the volume of product that's moving through 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 delivery. Which speaks to exactly what you were saying, which is consumer behavior um, out of uh, um, in-home uh, consumption. And how do we get our product? What what we say? How do we follow our customer, our employees, our travelers, our students, um, and 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 try and find them so that we can give them. At least a, an, an excellent, consistent coffee experience at home. Um, certainly in the in, in the in the days that that the stores were completely closed, and now still, while um, you know for a long period of time, and we're certainly planning that that um, staff will 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 work from home. It will be more flexible. I'm certainly hoping it's more like a 90, 10, 80, 20 scenario because I desperately miss miss my colleagues and um, all the innova- innovation and energy and but darren directing. darren you
1: you you're talking yes. about a, a cost of what for a cup of coffee what's what does it cost roughly
6: at, at retail you you can use an average value of about thirty rand
1: thirty rand now you've got to get that 30 yes. rand cup of coffee somehow yes. to someone's home which yes. surely is going to take a huge chunk of whatever margin you would be making on it
6: that's true and it is one of the um central components of this delivery model is that it is um far less profitable for us to sell a coffee on a on a delivery channel than it is in our store but the view is that it's mostly and it's been proven incremental so we're not worried that it's cannibalizing our business the trend is for instant gratification i'm sitting at home um it 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 it, it amazes me how many coffees and not even alongside a toasty or a muffin or a croissant are being purchased in the morning. Someone feels like a coffee. They want the Vita coffee. Um, our, our stores only deliver it within a certain radius um, to try and ensure that that hot coffee still arrives um, unspilled at, at your door. But yes, you're right, Alex, it's less profitable. But um, when you look at the volume that um, of business that it's generating for us, um, it it adds incrementally to our business and it's and it's gonna keep growing and we will become more and more active um in, in, in driving that side of the business. Magnus. What it also does by the way is it enables us to move into other day parts which we typically weren't in. So because delivery is very much a food offer. So we can dominate in, in the early morning, but you know, hopefully get some lunch, lunch trade also, which is good for us. It's an Sorry interesting, interesting you.
1: story, Magnus, because uh, like you in your business in uh, financial advice, you had to completely change as well. Uh, there's you during COVID. There's no way you could go and sit in front of a client and explain to them what they should be doing with their money.
4: Absolutely. We were forced to, as, as Darren used to, with would accelerate. Within a week or two, we were all experts on Zoom and Teams and everything that comes with it. And and, and strangely enough, uh, the, the clients are, are very comfortable with that. Very few have gone back to saying, I want to see you face-to-face. They're very comfortable sitting in their lounge while I'm sitting in my lounge, uh, having a chat on their investment. You do screen sharing. You save time, energy and has been a remarkable uh, boost to our productivity. But I want to ask Darren something. Is the Café video shop in Mauritius still open, the one in Black River? I'm very worried about it, <laughs> uh, Darren.
6: No, we, we, we're we very much still there. We've got five stores in Mauritius. Yeah, good,
4: uh, good. I'm very, I was very worried. As well. It's one of my yeah. favorite coffee shop in the Black River area in Mauritius. So, you've, you've made yeah. Magnus's You've made product weak. very well. <laughs> Thank you,
6: Thank Darren you. Leedy, yeah, very important partners that,
1: of us. Thanks for joining us, uh, Darren and uh, Magnus Haystick our guest co-host this evening. Well, time has just flown, but we've learned a heck of a lot tonight. Just uh, we know about them. We know about the companies we should be looking to in our portfolio to put into them. We know about accelerating because of the digital world and watching those companies who've also accelerated like uh, Vida Cafe and and Brenthurst.
3: You've left nothing for me to say, Alec.
1: Accepting. Brightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movements in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever matched life insurance company. It changes as your life changes.
3: The JSE All Share Index was slightly lower at 67,000. Internationally, the bloodbath at Credit Suisse continues, with the Swiss lender announcing further losses in the archaic demise, now standing at $5.5 billion, with not all positions unwinded as of yet. Locally, Steinhoff owned Pepco increased by 5% to 15 Rand 60 cents, Suntum increased by 7 Rand to 255 Rand a share. Process went up by 25 rand to a shade under 1,600 rand a share, and Sabania Stillwater lost two and three quarters of a percent to 70 rand a share. In the currency markets, the rand was flat against all the major currencies to 14 rand 29 cents to the dollar, 19 rand 78 cents to the sterling, and 17 rand 18 cents to the euro. Gold is up at 1,784 dollars an ounce. Brent crude is trading at 65.70 dollars 70 cents a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 780,000 rand a Bitcoin.
1: And it's interesting to see the transaction capital who today came out to say, we're having our results soon, was one of the big leaders in the market today. I guess the analysts went and did their homework said, ah, a results month, A
3: month after we did our homework. Yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly. And they like it. They like transaction capital uh, so Good well. business.
3: SA Taxi, you go, we buy cars. I mm-hmm. mean, as Pitful Yun said, I think you're getting – uh, parts of SA Taxi almost for free on the valuation of We Buy Cars compar- comparatively to their overseas peers
1: We look forward to talking to David Hurwitz about those results uh, which I think are mid-May. This market report was made just for you by BrightRock the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes Well thanks for being with us tonight We'll be back again with Festive Friday tomorrow Friday, Carrie Adams it?
3: and Jared Neves
1: And uh, wine in the studio
3: to lead us into the weekend, I well, guess.
1: Exactly. You know, you. You've, uh, I wonder if you're going to get Dudu to uh, participate this time round. I know Carrie is is keen to lead her into a, a different path, but uh, I'm sure you're going to help Carrie to, to finish at least half a bottle.
3: Just with regards to Dudu, we're just going to have to make sure that she has a very tough day at work tomorrow, and then I'm sure she'll have a glass with us.
1: <laughs> well, we'll be back with you at uh, 5.30 tomorrow, same time, same place, from the team here at Business